Well, good morning. Welcome to our second to last class on our uh, series on evangelism. Uh, before we begin to the class proper, uh, as you all know, or at least most of you know, we do uh, two things. We, we ask for uh, names for people in our lives that we can be praying for who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and then also, too, if there's anyone who's had an evangelistic encounter in the last week or two that you want to pithily, summarily share, pretty please, uh, for the sake of time, uh, want to do that as well. So let's start with prayer requests. Um, for those of you who haven't raised a hand before, is there anyone we can be praying for you today and throughout the week? Excellent. So Daniel, Zach, and two children. Excellent. Thank you. Anyone else want to? Jetty. Uh, my brother and sister in law, Josh and Cindy. Brother and sister in law. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. The Lord knows who you're talking about. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So we'll do that. We'll open in prayer in a second. Um, anyone have any opportunities in the last week or two to share the gospel you'd like to share? No obligation whatsoever. Heather. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Sure, sure, sure. Awesome. No, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Praise God for that. Uh, we'll we'll talk we'll talk next week um, about those sorts of encounters and some some thoughts on how to handle them. Um, you know, the, the gospel is or evangelism is never clean. It's never. I mean, sometimes it's I'm going to sit down with you over lunch, and I know I've got an hour, and you're a willing, rapt audience. But oftentimes, it's encounters like that. You know, it's it's simpler, sort of sporadic, um, shorter duration things, and um, it, it's good, I think, to sort of just think through some best practices and, and counsel and experiences on how to how to handle those situations. Oh, cool. Thank you for sharing, Heather. Thank you. All right, why don't we pray, and then we'll jump into our lesson. Father, we thank you above all else for the saving love and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that today the focus will be on what you would have us communicate, and, and with that, Lord, the, the, the glorious grace in which we walk and stand. And we pray, Lord, that our souls would be encouraged, that we would be edified, and we also pray, Lord, that this message would be ever on our lips. And we pray that you would use it in our lives to bring your elect to faith. We pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunity and fruit for the people in our lives as well. And of course, we pray for Heather's neighbors, Danielle and Zach and their children. We pray that they would come to a knowledge of the truth and of our Savior. Lord, we pray for Charity's brother and her sister-in-law, Josh and Trinity, and her dad, Jeff. And we pray for the, the myriad of family members um, of, of Katie's, Lord. We just we pray for them all. We lift them up. We know that you know, our, our hearts are 
burdened, Lord, to see those in our lives whom we love not rush headlong into your wrath. And just I pray, Lord, that you would be kind and merciful and gracious to them and um, bring us joy as we see them come to saving faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. All right. So as we always do, summary of our four prior weeks. Uh, We covered the fact that God is fundamentally working history to bring about the redemption of his elect from amongst every tribe and tongue and nation. We covered that God is sovereignly accomplishing this redemption in and through local churches, including our personal evangelism. Uh, We've covered that God has given us a very specific framework in which to operate. We don't get to make up how we evangelize. We don't get to invent new ways to bring people to Christ. Um, And also, we covered that God is sending us out as ambassadors to preach a message of reconciliation to a fallen world. And last week, the thrust of the lesson is that we are to see ourselves as ambassadors and prayerfully preach the gospel using the scriptures. That was the means and methods that we covered last week. This week, our focus is on the message that we are to convey. And at first blush, this is easy, right? I mean, every single person, if I asked you the question, you know, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a Christian? You'd, you'd, I imagine everybody would raise their hand, hopefully, else why are you here? Um, crazy. Uh, I'm glad you're here, by the way, if you're not, but uh, uh, kind of odd. Um, and, and so if, if you are a believer, then by definition, you understood the gospel and you believe the gospel. So I should simply be able to say, that thing that you believe, go talk about that. Um, That should be as easy as a class is. Unfortunately, it's not. Um, You know, obviously, it's possible that there are folks here who who do not know the Lord or are watching online. Um, And so I certainly don't want to take the gospel for granted. But as it relates to evangelism, um, it is, there are other some things that, that I think are, are worth kind of noting out. We may actually have some temporary and accidental heretics uh, in our midst, uh, people who are just confused about some point of the gospel, and we certainly don't want a confused gospel going out. Um, it's also possible that there are some people who, if I gave you a test, would score 100% on all things related to the gospel. But if I asked you to articulate it, you would leave out some essential element, not because you don't believe it, but because you don't recognize that it needs to be communicated. Um, Or conversely, uh, you might have somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum for whom the gospel is a two-hour presentation at minimum. Um, You have to start in Genesis. You have to go all the way to Revelation. Anything that you you don't cover, you've screwed up. You've missed the gospel. Um, And so we can have too much, I think, in terms of our, our understanding of what the gospel presentation ought to look like. And so our class today is less about, you know, what is the gospel, what can we say, and it's more focused, I think, on what those essential elements are, the essential elements of the gospel without which, if you fail to communicate those elements, you have presented the gospel inadequately. So we're going to be looking to draw some lines around the gospel and delineate what the core message is and what the supporting detail that we can and ought to communicate looks like. Uh, Because I think the distinction is really, really important. Um, So we have four objectives today. First and foremost, I want to um, convey some principles that I think are useful in drawing out what those essential elements are to get us on the same page. Second, we will define those essential elements of the gospel. Uh, Third, we will operationalize that gospel message in a couple of principles. Uh, I want to make sure that um, I don't simply tell you, here's the things you should say, but give you a framework in which it would be useful to say it. Um, Without being prescriptive or binding, you'll you'll see what I mean when we get there. 
And then I want to end with two sermons and acts to kind of see what we're talking about here in practice. So we've got a lot to get through. Um, and I want to start again with those principles. I should pause and say, this last week I've rewritten this class about four different times. Um, so there are some uh, places in your notes where I may have missed a word or a piece of punctuation. So forgive me in advance. Um, you may have to infer some intent in a place or two. Uh, but the first, the first point on your outline is, is insert here part of the gospel? Um, when I first started writing this class, I just went right to, all right, here are the essential elements of the gospel. And then I, I thought about it and I said, what if someone in the class were to raise their hand and say, but what about X, whatever X is? Jesus's lineage, his um, association with David, some specific point of doctrine. If they said, is this part of the essential gospel that we need to communicate? How would I say yes or no? And how would I get us all to be on the same page? Um, and I think it's a fair question, right? Because if you are, um, if, you're, if you're reading through the Gospels or you're reading through the book of Acts, you see sermons in practice. And so the question becomes, Paul says the same things in four different occasions. Is what he's saying there, you know, part of what I need to communicate? Do I need to mirror what Paul says? Uh, there are times where Jesus gives his disciples instructions in the Gospels when he sends out uh, them to do some temporary missionary work within the context of Israel. Are those instructions binding? How do we make those, those lines in the sand? Um, if you have been a believer for long, you will probably have heard the book of Romans described as an extended gospel presentation. Uh, you may even have come across the concept of the Romans road, which is essentially just a presentation method that traces out Paul's line of argument in that book. But Paul says a lot of things in Romans. Um, you know, chapter seven is all on sanctification, for example. So. Is that part of the gospel message? How do I draw those lines if I have a conversation on the gospel with my sister and I don't talk about Romans 7, did I screw up? Is it okay? How does that work? And so I wanna, I wanna go through, I think, six principles that help us think through this, and then we'll look at four passages of scripture that I think will convey to us the essential elements of the gospel. So uh, principle or rule number one, uh, we should be very, very careful very, very careful when we say such and such is an essential element of the gospel. Um, if we are going to say that this thing must be communicated, you are essentially saying you must believe this thing in order to be saved. Uh, it is so important that your soul is in jeopardy if you don't. You will, we should break fellowship over it. You should be denied membership to this church over it. So this isn't a, high, this isn't, isn't a low bar. This is a pretty high bar. This is something we should take very, very seriously. Um, and it's not something that we should allow ourselves to be haphazard about or to speculate over. Uh, second principle. When saying such and such is or is not an essential element of the gospel, we should give more weight to those passages in Scripture talking about what the gospel is versus those that are simply examples of evangelism. Uh, this is an old hermeneutical principle. You start with the clear and you work your way to the less clear. Um, I think this is also a similar idea to looking at prescriptive texts versus descriptive texts. If the Bible t says this is what the gospel is, we should go there before we start looking at sermons and, say, and deducing the gospel from those sermons. Third principle. Um, we should avoid confusing things said while evangelizing with the gospel itself. When you present the gospel to someone, you will use a lot of words generally. You will say things and you will add detail to things that are explanatory and helpful, but are not necessarily an essential element of the gospel itself. 
Just because someone says something in an evangelistic context does not make that automatically part of the core message of the gospel. In the same way, when we look at the New Testament, we see a great deal of variety in the sermons there. Um, there is a lot of flexibility in how things get said, and that's why we're going to look at two sermons at the end of today's class to actually see that in practice. Principle four, sometimes a particular evangelist finds something to be really useful and repeats it over and over again. Again, that does not mean it's automatically an essential element of the gospel. Um, Paul often speaks to Gentile audiences about their relationship to God as creator. Um, when we see uh, the gospel preached to Jewish audiences, we don't see that. Just because Paul is communicating that element of the gospel, which we'll cover uh, in that way over and over and over again, does not necessarily mean that it is how we ought to do it. Um, and then lastly, and this one I think is important, we should avoid making the mistake of believing that a person has to believe the entirety of sound doctrine on day one. Um, there's a lot of good things that we could communicate to someone, and if you have you know, two hours to do it, by all means. Uh, Paul did do that at times. He spent extended periods of time teaching. Uh, that's great. That's fine. I would love, and I really think churches should, as someone comes to saving faith, first thing you do, walk them through a systematic theology. Um, you know, don't let them, you know, be in the wind. Don't let them, you know, discover the stuff on their own. Let's, let's help, uh, you know, believers um, um, come to a knowledge of, of sound doctrine as soon as possible. But that doesn't mean that in your gospel presentation you have to communicate the sum total of the Bible. Um, don't make the mistake of thinking that something that is good or a right to communicate is somehow an essential element of the gospel that we have to communicate. Does that make sense? Do those principles make sense? Any objections to any of them? It's kind of important that we're aligned. All right, I'm seeing none, so we're going to keep going. All right, so next section, explaining the cross of Christ. So in keeping with that second principle of looking at texts that talk about what the gospel is, there are four that I think are especially important. Um, there are some interesting wobblers in the New Testament that we could look at. Uh, I didn't do it for sake of time because they're not quite as clear or direct or on point as these ones, um, but there are some others that's worth at least noting. Okay, so uh, 1 Corinthians 1.23. 1 Corinthians 1.23, if you want to turn there, that's fine. I'm just going to read the passages. It's really short. Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Paul is summarizing his gospel presentation in two words, Christ crucified. For Paul, that is the heart of what the gospel message is. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. We looked at Galatians 3.1 last week. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Um, the whole point of Galatians is Paul is essentially attacking a false gospel. And in doing so, he is pointing them to the real one. And as he does that, his summary sentence is, I have painted a picture for you to see of Jesus Christ on the cross. For Paul, the gospel is fundamentally about the cross. Hopefully that's not surprising to any of us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5 you know, Eric preached on this a little while ago. Uh, Paul here is literally saying, he says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received, in which you stand, and which, by which you are being saved. Um, and then in verse 3, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. All right, so what's the first important thing? What's the, what's the essential, essential element? That Christ died for our sins according with, in accordance with the scriptures. Um, so obviously, again, the cross, and not simply the fact that Jesus died, obviously, but the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death. He died for our sins. He died suffering in our place, the death that we deserve. That is the fundamental message for Paul. He doesn't just end it there, though. He gives a little more detail that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Two things in that passage are in accordance with the scriptures, his death and his resurrection. The resurrection is essential to the gospel. Jesus is not simply a slaughtered offering. He is a risen and reigning Lord. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. If you uh, haven't turned to any one of these passages so far, turn to that one. Second Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. We've covered this before as well, but it's worth going through in detail. Uh, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. I'm going to pause there. So Paul is summarizing his ministry. You know, he's, a, he's an ambassador sent by God, and God is making his appeal through us. And then with the, with the words in verse 20 that start with, we implore you from that to the end of 21, it's a summary of the message. God has, uh, is making an appeal, and this is the appeal that's being made. So Paul is summarizing what he is ultimately entrusted with preaching, what we are entrusted with preaching. So uh, we implore you, be reconciled to God, because you aren't. Uh, to borrow language from Romans 5, we are God's enemies. We are enemies of God. We stand before his wrath, but we can have peace, be reconciled. We can have that issue addressed. And then in verse 21, Paul goes through uh, how that occurs. So he says, he, this is God doing the work. It's him taking initiative to save. This is grace. This is undeserved. He made him to be sin. Jesus acted as a substitute who took sins on himself on the cross. But it wasn't just sin in general as a concept. It was for our sake. He took on the specific sins for those who would believe. God counts him as suffering in our place, bearing the punishment we deserved. Every sin that I have committed, am committing, will commit, was laid on him. So we see the, the first part of this great exchange uh, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Um, second part of this great exchange, also imperative to the gospel. So, I'm sorry, um, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The goal is not simply forgiveness of sins because that isn't enough. No one stands before God with a blank slate. You lived a life. That life is bad. You need that wiped away. But there's no neutral parties before God. There's no person who has their wife wiped away and you're simply this ethereal concept. You need to either be a lawbreaker before God or a law completer before God. We are breakers of law or upholders of it. And Jesus did everything that the law required and everything in his ministry that his father desired. God doesn't just count our sins to Jesus. He credits the same perfect life that Jesus lived to us. God doesn't see my 36 years of sin. He sees Jesus' 33 years of obedience. Both of those elements 
the forgiveness, the substitutionary death of Jesus, as well as the imputed righteousness of Jesus are essential to the gospel. So with these passages in mind, I think there are four elements that I would say are the essential components of the gospel that we need to be keeping in mind in preaching. I put them in your notes. Number one, our status as sinners before a holy God. Second, Jesus' substitutionary death, sorry, substitutionary death on the cross, wherein he bore the punishment for the sins that we have committed and will commit. The third, the crediting of Jesus' righteousness to us instead of our being righteous before God on our own, as if that were possible. And fourth, Jesus' status as the reigning and risen Lord. These are the things we want people to embrace. We want people to repent of their sins and trusting these things to be true for them. Now, uh, I'm going to pause in a second and, and ask for, for questions, but uh, this next section in your notes where, where it's called distilling this down, um, I want to take what we said here and turn it into something practical. Again, this whole course, we're trying to move towards practicality by the end of it. Um, and so I don't want you to leave you with simply saying you've got to communicate those things. I think there is, when you distill down all of the evangelistic encounters and principles in the New Testament, I think there are a, 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 a generalized path forward that we ought to understand. And I think if you remember nothing else from this course, if you remember these four principles, I think you'll, you'll do well as you try to communicate the gospel to someone. Before we get there, any questions on anything that I've said thus far? Craig. Sure. Good question. So two questions. Number one, uh, Jesus being risen and reigning Lord. What are the implications for that uh, to the culture? And then the, the other question was, how do we leverage the law as it relates to establishing the first point that we are sinners before a holy God? Get those right? Okay. Um, the first question I think I'm going to punt on, um, mostly because it's, I think it's out of scope. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of the class is to talk about the essential elements that we are to be communicating. The implications of those elements are, um, you could make them part of the gospel presentation. You could even frame the gospel presentation around that if you wanted to, but it's not necessarily something that we are obligated to communicate. Um, the use of the law, whole different ball of wax. Um, I, um, um, I'm a big fan of the, 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 what's it called, the way of the master. Um, there's a, there's a, a process by which, uh, you know, the, uh, we talked about this in a previous class, I think last week, the law was meant for sinners. We are able to go back to the law and to communicate our obligations, our clear obligations. Um, at the end of Romans 1, again, Paul makes it very clear we understand what our obligations are not only to God, but in general, morally. Um, the law is the ultimate reflection of that moral standard, and we should be, to the extent possible, the, um, going, pointing people back to what those commands are, reminding them of their obligations and the fact that they fall short of it. Um, we'll talk more about that next week, I think, but that is, I think, a, 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 not a required way of going there, but I think it's a really, really, really useful way of going there. Does that answer your questions? Cool. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? Sweet. 
All right, so let's distill this down. Four principles, again, if you take away nothing else from this, this morning or this course, take away these principles. Number one, our fundamental job is to communicate that we must trust that God put his own son to death, punishing Jesus for our actual sins as a substitute, and now credits the risen and reigning Lord's perfect life to us as if we had lived it, such that we are viewed as righteous before God. It's really just me trying to summarize those four essential elements. Our fundamental job is to communicate that we must trust that God put his own son to death, punishing Jesus for our actual sins as a substitute, and now credits the risen and reigning Lord's perfect life to us as if we had lived it, such that we are viewed as righteous before God. Number two, to communicate that message effectively, we need to provide whatever context is necessary for a given person to understand that message. To communicate that message effectively, we need to provide whatever context is necessary for a given person to understand that message. Three, the single most important bit of context is that we are sinners who deserve the infinite wrath of a holy and just God. The single most important bit of context is that we are sinners who deserve the infinite wrath of a holy and just God. And then fourth, There is no single specific path to communicating this information. There is no magical order, specific wording, or time frame required in scripture. No single specific path to communicating the information. And to illustrate that point, we're gonna look relatively quickly at two different sermons in Acts. Um, We're gonna start with Acts 17, Paul at the Areopagus, and then we will go to Acts 2 and look at Peter's Pentecost sermon. Any questions on those principles? Does that make sense? See people flipping to Bibles, nodding heads. Excellent. Okay, I'm running with it. All right. Uh, Acts 17, Paul's sermon at the Areopagus. All right, so um, for both these sermons, um, I'm going to read them, and then I am going to make some observations slash summarize the content. Um, and then we'll so we do that for each of the sermons, and then we'll kind of make some you know, uh, bigger picture observations uh, as we conclude today. So Acts 17, uh, verses 22 to 31 is Paul's sermon here. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is anything like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All right. So uh, first point, as you're going through the sermon, becomes pretty clear. This is a sermon that begins in, in middle and ends with God as creator. God is, Paul is presenting God as the one who created everything. His audience, as we'll see in a second, are pompous, self-important idolaters. That's not a slander. That is, that's like their job title. Um, they are utterly unacquainted with the true God. So he begins by saying that there is one God who created everything, who rules over everything, whom we are utterly dependent on and who needs nothing from us. Verse 24 says the God who made the world and all things in it. 25 gives to all people life and breath and everything. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. Um, and then we are his children. So by starting with God as creator, Paul then is implicitly announcing our obligations to God as creatures. Uh, if we have a creator, we as creatures have obligations to that creator. Um, if that creator is, in verse 24, the Lord of heaven and earth, we owe to him our obedience and worship. If, as it said in verse 25, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, then we owe him our thanks and our love. Now, of course, so got a creator, you got obligations to the creator, and the Athenians, Paul points out, are utterly failing. And Paul does this in two ways. One, he's explicit about it. He says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Um, but he does it quite implicitly as well. And you really have to, I mean, I, I wish I had like a, a screen to show you what this place looked like. Uh, the Areopagus was ancient. Um, some accounts put it pre-Moses. It was the place where Socrates was tried and condemned. It uh, translates Mars Hill because, according to legend, um, the god Mars was put on trial there for killing another god. Um, it's on a hill. It's a big, big piece of rock. The judges sit on, they sit open air on seats hewn out of the rock itself. Uh, they're on a platform that comes right out of the marketplace. The temple of Mars is on top of the hill. Uh, there are images of goddesses of vengeance right underneath the judges. And if you're standing there and you're looking at it, right behind it is the Parthenon and a giant statue of Athena. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's idols everywhere. Uh, the Athens itself was a city full of idols. Um, one account, contemporary account, said uh, there's about 30,000 public idols in Athens, not counting uh, private idols. Uh, one author at the time said that there are more idols in Athens than the rest of Greece combined. I mean, this place is just a wash of idolatry. And so Paul's sitting there saying, idols are stupid and they're bad and there's one God to a place that is literally flanked by idols behind them, next to them, underneath them, and all around them. So he's, he's implicitly pointing out how badly they've screwed up in addition to telling them explicitly that there's, the time of ignorance has ended and it's time to repent. They clearly stand guilty before God. Um, and it's masterful, I think, the way, the way Paul does that. And all of this, of course, matters because God is holy. Uh, we owe certain things to our creator, and frighteningly, that creator cares about those things. He cares whether or not we perform them. Uh, God will judge. There is no rebellion that will go overlooked. There is no sin that will go unpunished. And Paul concludes his sermon with saying so. Uh, but notice the sermon stops. You know, no good news whatsoever preached here. Not a single thing. He mentions that there'll be a man who will judge the world, 
and implies that he died since he mentions the resurrection, but he doesn't mention the cross. He doesn't mention Christ's imputed righteousness, doesn't mention faith, doesn't mention forgiveness. Um, he just stops right there. Okay, I'm not going to explain that. I'll explain that later. Let's go to Peter's sermon. Uh, Acts 2, 14 to 40. Acts 2, 14 to 40. And as you're turning there, I will explain. I'm going to read this. It is a lot of passage. Um, I'm going to summarize it very succinctly. There's a lot here. We could do sermons on this. I'm not going to today. Uh, Acts 2, 14 to 40. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now God raised him up, losing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence that the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb was with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you, have, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm going to skip down to verse 40. And he said, With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, Totally the same sermon Paul preached, right? Like no differences whatsoever. They're just spot on identical. 
Um, now, P Peter's sermon is <laughs> a lot longer and way more complicated. So here's a basic summary. Uh, this is his post-Pentecost sermon. A miracle had just happened. The Holy Spirit filled the disciples. Uh, there was, um, men began, uh, they began praising God in all sorts of languages. And some people mocked him. And so this is Peter stepping up and setting the record straight. They are not only not drunk, but this was a prophesied event and a big deal. And he covers that with the long quote um, at the, in, in those verses. In verse 22 is where he transitions to talking about Jesus. Um, and obviously, Peter makes very clear, these people knew who Jesus were. This is a Jewish audience. They're familiar with his life and his ministry. Um, in verses 22 to 23, Peter says not only that God did signs and wonders through Jesus amongst the men of Israel, but he also accuses them of killing Jesus through the Romans. So yeah, they knew who Jesus was. Um, verses 22 and 24 are not happy verses for Israel. Uh, Peter is fully putting them on notice. God worked miracles through Jesus. God showed, uh, showed you with power um, that Jesus was from God. And you murdered him. You used the Romans to do it, but you murdered the man sent by God. Uh, Peter then goes on to say that Jesus has been raised from the dead and raised because it's impossible for him to stay dead, which is a bold claim. And so he cites Psalm 16, verses 25 to 28 to back it up. And then verse 29 is sort of the climax of the sermon. It's uh, Peter begins to explain in more detail who Jesus is to the audience. Verse 30, he is the promised descendant of David. 31, he is the Messiah. 33, he has been exalted and now with the Father. And 33 as well, Jesus is the one who caused this miracle to occur. He is not some simple prophet. Peter is clear that he is not, again, some simple righteous man or prophet who was unjustly put to death. He is the Messiah, the prophesied one. Israel murdered their king, and God raised him from the dead and exalted him. And Peter and the other apostles are witnesses to this fact. And that, in a nutshell, is his sermon. But notice, just like Paul, Peter stops. He mentions early on in the sermon that um, you know, anyone who calls on, on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a quote. Uh, but he doesn't give any good news. He doesn't really convey any of the substantive, hopeful message that we had talked about earlier. He literally says, you killed the Messiah, and then he stops talking. I imagine he sat down if there was a seat, but he just stops talking. Um, and in fact, verse 37, the people say, what shall we do? Which implies that he didn't tell them what to do. You murdered God stops. Uh, he condemns them and he sits down. It's only after they ask that he tells them what to do about the guilt that they now feel. So, two sermons uh, that we're covering, <laughs> where after saying that there's an essential element of the gospel, and I, I've summarized in a couple places, all about the good news, where there's no good news preached whatsoever. Um, so you may be asking a couple of questions. One, why did Peter and Paul not preach the good news? You may be asking, how does this square with Paul saying that he preaches Christ crucified, where clearly he did not preach Christ crucified? And you might be asking, why the heck did you pick these two sermons if the good news isn't in them? All fair questions. Um, so let's, let's, kinda, let's go through them and you'll, you'll see the point. Um, number one, why did neither Paul nor Peter preach the good news? It's a strategy. It's an evangelistic method. Um, they are preaching the bad news first, and when there is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in their hearers, then they present the good news. If I come to uh, Craig and I say, Craig, you are a sinner, 
Um, and Craig says, yeah, actually I'm pretty perfect. And he walks away. Like there's no reason to explain the cross. Um, if I say, Craig, you're a sinner and Craig goes, you're right. What should I do about it? Then you go into the good news. So it's a, it's a strategy that Peter and Paul are employing. Um, how does this square with Paul's statements about him preaching Christ crucified? There is no contradiction. Uh, Peter uh, very clearly talks, at least in summary form, talks about the gospel. He tells them what to do, and we know this because thousands of people are added to the church on that day. Um, what we're seeing here in these two sermons really are principles two and three in action. To communicate the message effectively, we need to provide whatever context is necessary for a given person to understand the message. And the most important bit of context is what? That you're sinners who deserve the infinite wrath of a holy and God. They do preach Christ crucified. They do it in a certain way. But Christ crucified makes no sense unless you understand that it was your sin that put him on the cross. And what they're really doing is just hammering home the need for the cross before they explain it. So why did I pick these two sermons? Well, because of principle four. There's no specific path that you need to take in order to get to the gospel. Um, the apostles chose to preach this way. You can preach differently. If you want to start with the good news and as you're doing that, explain sin, that's totally fine. There are, the essential elements are there. Um, but there are a million different ways to get them. And you have freedom to preach the gospel in a way that is appropriate to your situation. Though, at the end of it, you need to preach the essential elements that we talked about. Now, certainly, um, if you were to communicate sin to somebody and they were to throw their hands up and walk away, you didn't, you know, you're not, your gospel presentation is not inadequate. Um, but if you are going to give a speech, if you are going to communicate the whole thing, you've got to cover sin forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection. Um, so, you know, there's, there's different ways of doing it, but understand that those elements need to be there. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 one of the things that's worth, worth pointing out is these two sermons are actually incredibly similar when you think about them. There are some pretty important differences. You could, you know, literally go through them. Peter quotes the Bible three times, Paul not once. Uh, Peter focuses his sermon on Jesus. Paul focuses on who God is and our relationship to him. Uh, Peter uh, is a little more explicit about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Paul mentions the resurrection almost in passing. Uh, Paul is laser focused on idolatry and Peter doesn't mention it at all. There are some legitimate differences, but at the core, it's really the same sermon. They are both hammering home uh, to their listeners that they are sinners before God, and they are providing the necessary context for their audience to understand the crucial gospel message, to understand the cross. The difference boils down to different audiences. Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience, and Paul is speaking to Gentiles. Peter's audience knows who God is. They understand that they are created beings who will stand before a holy God. They know God's commands. They have the law. Paul's audience is accountable to know those things, uh, but they have suppressed that knowledge and they need to have it in front of their faces. It's two different audiences, two different needs, and so both apostles approach their sermon in different ways. Um, Peter is explaining uh, why a miraculous event happened and Paul is launching into the gospel cold. Uh, Peter is literally preaching after an event that was prophesied to the people to whom it was prophesied. And again, Paul's launching into the gospel cold to a bunch of academics. Uh, Peter's audience is intimately acquainted with who Jesus is, and Paul's audience has no idea. 
Uh, there are very different audiences with very different religious backgrounds, very different understandings of God. And so, of course, they're going to preach, they're going to get to the same essential elements in a different way. In the same way, we can and should feel free to tailor our presentation to our audience and our specific circumstances. If you're talking to the pizza guy and you've got five minutes, that looks different than if you're talking to your cousin who just converted to Islam two weeks ago. It's totally different conversations. You still communicate the essential elements, but you're gonna get there in very different ways. Uh, which is actually, since we're out of time, a great way to end today's class because next week is all about those practicalities. So we've covered you know, the, the big theological picture so far in this course. We've covered that this uh, evangelistic work is really God's sovereign mission in the world. We covered that we are supposed to be preaching in a certain way, and we've covered the message that we are to communicate. Uh, next week, we're really going to focus in on just some practical helps, hints, best practices, lessons learned um, that I think will you know, they're non-binding, they're, they're, they're really just sort of things that you see in the scriptures by way of example, or <laughs> mistakes that I've made over the years, um, or things I've, I've seen other people put in practice that are good. Um, and so it's just, it's gonna be the most practical of all the lessons. But before we do that, I needed to hammer home the point that nothing that we're gonna say there is meant to be binding on conscience because you gotta hit these principles, these four principles still apply, but how you get there is you know, really a matter of you know, your own experience, what you're comfortable saying, how you're comfortable saying, your knowledge base, who you're talking to, what you know of them, what you don't know of them, how much time you have, who's around you, all sorts of factors. And that's evangelism in a nutshell. Does that make sense? Questions, comments, concerns, rejoinders, rebuttals? David. I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's that's the point I was trying to make as well. Well, I will I will be explicit. Um, so let's do the second point first, go back to the first one. Uh, yes, absolutely. So what I'm trying to hammer home is that there is no obligatory way of getting there. If you are having a conversation uh, with a coworker uh, over lunch, and there is something that is a natural launching off point, maybe it's a point of public policy, maybe it's uh, something going on in the office, maybe it's something they confess to you that they did wrong, whatever it is, 100% totally fine to launch into that. We are to communicate that they are sinners before a holy God, um, and if there is a clear, natural path to do it, take it. Um, whether that is a cultural issue going on, uh, maybe it's a coworker or a friend or a neighbor or a spouse or family member who is rapidly pro-abortion, for example. 
go ahead, launch in the gospel that way. Um, you're just not obligated to sort of take that path to it at the end of the day. But there's nothing wrong with it. Um, whatever the cleanest, easiest, most understandable path is to communicating that they're a sinner, take it. Um, and your first question, um, blanking on it now. Sorry, what was? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I take that passage more about Paul sort of uh, avoiding unnecessary offense um, and kind of fitting in a little bit more um, as opposed to tailoring his message to his audience. Um, but I think the, the principle is the same thing. We'll talk next week about avoiding unnecessary offense. Uh, the gospel is offensive enough. You are a sinner who deserves the wrath of God. You know, that could get you punched in the face alone. Um, you don't need to add to it. Uh, you shouldn't add to it. Um, and so, you know, we'll talk about avoiding the unnecessary offense. And that's kind of how I take Paul there in 1 Corinthians. Daniel. So even though they're different audiences, mm -hmm. uh, different approaches, they're both still using the law as a bad use to get to the gospel, which is the good news. Because even though Paul doesn't bring up Christ crucified, really, in Athens, mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. which is a part of the law, it's forbidden, and so really like we've, in both of these, they're parallel because they're both pointing to the law as the bad news. They're saying, here's what you've done, this is why you deserve it, you can't, you can't look good before a holy God at all. The law was given strictly to show us you can't live up to my standards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think there's an interesting, yeah, I would agree. And so Daniel's point for those at home was, you know, essentially in both cases, both Peter and Paul are um, using the clear commands and standards of God to convict their audience. Um, it's an interesting terminology difference. So when I sit here, the words use the law, I, I'm thinking actually going back to an explicit commandment, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery type of thing, um, as opposed to simply using um, the, the, the general moral concepts that are written on every conscience. Um, I think Paul makes that distinction too in Romans uh, 2, that there is the explicit giving of the law, and then there's the law that's on the heart of every single person aside from God's direct revelation. But either way, what he's doing, but both Paul and Peter are doing, is appealing to the fact that there are standards, that they know these standards, and that they are accountable for having completed or not completed what God is expecting of us, whether as the people of Israel or Gentiles who owe to our creator, our worship, our love, our obedience, and our thanks. Does that make sense? Other questions, comments? Craig. Is that that promises what was given to Abraham 
where uh, you know his seed will possess the gate of his enemies, and that this I see is an absolutely essential piece and part of the gospel, and particularly in light of the early Christians who were preaching against the gospel of Caesar Augustus, and that's what sent them to the Colosseum and caused them to be led as human torches under Caesar Nero, and that. And I really believe that these things are, are essential components and, and should be tied in. So as it relates to that piece there, when he was quoting from Psalms about making his enemies your footstool, uh, do you see that as an essential piece of the gospel? I think if you make the argument that that's an essential piece of the gospel, you have to say that Paul failed to preach an adequate gospel in Acts 17. Um, it's just not there in the vast majority of gospel presentations in the New Testament. If it's essential, most of the gospel presentations in the New Testament are inadequate. When they are preaching the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, you know, frequently, you know, where they're talking about this, and to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, mm -hmm. is that not included in part and parcel with that whole idea? And particularly when Paul at the Areopagus is, is saying, I'm proclaiming to you the, you know, the unknown God, mm -hmm. he's, he is, he's definitely taking that head on. If you're, if you're, with the culture. but if you're making the argument, so to, Dealing with the culture, it's, it's, it's a nebulous phrase, so I'll be careful I'm not misreading you. Um, but at the same point in time, you know, the concept of, you know, dominion, the concept of, um, well, let's just start with dominion. I mean, again, it's not, it's not present in the sermon there. And so if we're going to say it's an essential element, you know, we, again, being very careful to draw those lines. When you start talking about the gospel of the kingdom, so when you, when you start looking at the phrase that that, where that occurs in the New Testament, it overwhelmingly and almost exclusively occurs in Matthew. Uh, there are few instances in other places. So early Mark, I want to say 4, chapter 4, uh, it's a summation, a summation of Jesus, uh, his message. Um, but most of the time where the gospel of the kingdom is mentioned, um, it is in Matthew, which is the most Jewish of all the books. Um, in fact, in, G in Matthew 10, when Jesus sends the disciples out, he tells them to preach the gospel of the kingdom, but he tells them, do not go to Gentiles and do not go to Samaritans, go to Israel and Israel only. There is another instance in uh, Acts 8 where P uh, Stephen preaches the gospel of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom to the Samaritans. But what's interesting, I think, is when you look at that message, it's almost exclusively to a Jewish audience or to a Samaritan audience where it actually makes sense and there's context for it. Um, it's not something that seems to be preached to the Gentiles. Um, I think it's I think the, the implications of uh, the gospel in the world, you know, there are different places where you can land on some of that stuff. Um, and I think those are a more part of sound doctrine than they are an essential element of the gospel that must be communicated at every time. Um, I certainly think that uh, if there are you know, cultural elements, again, whether that's abortion or uh, rampant greed or idolatry or those sorts of things, those are lead-ins ultimately to telling an individual that they are a sinner in the hands of a holy God. Um, and that's really more where I would draw the line in terms of what's essential versus not. Uh, I'm sorry, folks at home, uh, <laughs> that uh, I can't repeat all of that. Um, I'm not going to try. Um, if you got questions, message me on Faith Life. So, all right, why don't we uh, why don't we end in prayer? Father, thank you for your endless grace to us. Thank you for 
for the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the message that we have received, the message that we stand in, the message that we have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved by, Lord. And we thank you that it is all of grace and undeserved, and I pray that we would have walked away today with a clear picture of what it is that we are to communicate and that we'd be faithful in not only trusting you and your sovereignty and prayerfully preaching the gospel using the scriptures, but that we would be faithful also to this message, Lord, even though it is hard, even though it does not win friends and influence people. It is, it is a message that is, is antagonistic. It's a message that is hard, and it is a message that makes us the aroma to death of those who are perishing. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love and that you are sovereign over all of this and work all things together for our good. May we be faithful evangelists. In Jesus' name, amen.